You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So did you know that if you're an American taxpayer, part of your taxes are being used to fund unions and their business inside the federal government? That's something that I never knew coming out of the private sector until about 10 years ago. And the term that is used is this innocuous term called official time. And it is something that is funded through tax dollars, both at the federal level and in many states. So joining me today is Maxford Nelson. He's a returning guest to Labor Relations Radio and the Director of Research and Government Affairs at the Freedom Foundation. And Max wrote a recent piece entitled The Biden Administration Covering Up Taxpayer-Funded Union Activities in the Federal Workforce. And I thought it would be a good idea to have a conversation because I know many taxpayers out there don't realize where their tax dollars are going. So without further ado, here's Maxford Nelson. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Maxford Nelson, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. It's great to see you. Well, thanks for having me, Peter. Always a pleasure. Well, you... You write such good stuff and put stuff out there that whenever I can get you on, it's always a pleasure to have you. You did an article. There's a flurry of articles, as I said before I hit the record button, a flurry of articles recently about the Biden administration and official time. And yours had a good background to what official time is. But I keep forgetting, as I mentioned, that I've been doing this so long, I keep forgetting that people don't realize that their tax dollars are paying for union business. And so figured we could go into that and some of the history with that. Well, more than happy to. It's it's not a new problem, as you mentioned, uh, but it is a very common one and one that probably doesn't get near enough attention. Uh, but as, as you know, the concept is fairly straightforward and it kind of goes by various names. Uh, but the concept is fairly straightforward. It's uh, many public employees from federal workers to school districts to municipal governments and, and state workers are union represented. Uh, federal government has its statute and its laws for uh, unionization and collective bargaining in the federal workforce. Each state writes its own rules for whether and to what extent its uh, public employees can uh, organize and collectively bargain with with government entities. Uh, But it is very common uh, in the states that, uh, and and certainly in the federal government context, uh, that have strong collective bargaining uh, laws in place for unions to either bargain uh, with the employer for release time, official time, uh, or for it to be simply granted by law. Uh, And the end result is that Public employees uh, are who are being paid with tax dollars to do a particular government job are being permitted to work on behalf of a private organization, the labor union, during the workday while continuing to receive their full salary and benefits courtesy of the taxpayer. Uh, that's something that I, I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't realize and would be a little bit shocked to, to learn 
Um, but as I mentioned, it's it's quite common and quite pervasive. Uh, unfortunately, it's difficult to track, so it's hard to measure exactly how much uh, time and lost productivity uh, taxpayers are funding uh, for public employees who are at, at work or, or out somewhere anyway, at least on payroll, uh, but we're performing work for these private labor organizations. Uh, but it's a huge problem uh, and, and one that I think uh, federal and state policymakers need to take a closer look at. So at the at the federal level, they call it official time and or release time. But for lack of the nomenclature, it's really just taxpayers paying for union business or union Correct. officials to do union business. Correct. Taxpayer funded union time is, is a pretty good descriptor of the practice. Uh, in technical terms, uh, it's referred to as official time in the federal government, and that's the term that's used in, in the federal service uh, labor management relations statute. Uh, at the state and local level, often there isn't any particular title associated with it. I've kind of taken to calling it release time. Uh, but again, that concept is all the same. It's taxpayers funding public employees to do work during the workday on behalf of a labor union instead of teaching in the classroom or uh, serving vet, uh, veterans, you know, at the VA or whatever their government job happens to be. Well, and you indicated at the federal level, that's been around since 1978. At and least since 78. I mean, 78 was when the, the federal uh, labor management relations statute was passed. And it does require at some level that official time be granted to federal employees who are union officers. I suspect I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I make no claim to, to be an expert or historian on, on the history of labor relations in the federal government, but I would be surprised if uh, official time as a concept didn't predate even the, the 1978 statute. Uh, federal employees initially engaged in bargaining pursuant to uh, an executive order uh, in the Kennedy administration. Uh, it wasn't until years, years later that Congress essentially codified that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if official time goes back even to, to the Kennedy executive order, though I, I can't verify that for sure. So let me ask you, is it safe to, stay, safe to say that even for those people that live in, quote, red states where there's not strong public sector negotiations or collective bargaining that even their tax dollars, because at the federal level, they obviously pay federal income taxes, their tax dollars are being somehow funding union activity. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. And I'd go even further than that. I mean, certainly it's correct that if you're a federal taxpayer, some portion of your tax dollars uh, is, is essentially going to union activities. Uh, but even in many uh, red or conservative leaning states, uh, public employees unionize and collectively bargain, and there are very few states at the moment uh, that have prohibitions in place that would prevent unions from negotiating release time provisions in their collective bargaining agreements. And our own research in, in uh, generally right-of-center states around the country shows that this is incredibly common practice. Uh, certainly, it's it's probably more common in uh, places that are a little more uh, union friendly or where government unions are more entrenched or, you know, when we've seen some states uh, taking legislative steps to, to, as the federal government has done, to simply uh, require that public employers provide certain amounts of release time uh, to unions and taking that off the negotiating table by mandating it. Uh, but so far, very few states have gone the opposite route and taken that off the table, off the negotiating table by prohibiting it or regulating it. 
Uh, Arizona did pass legislation within the last uh, couple of years that put some parameters on release time, uh, but really did not go far enough. Essentially, it just prohibited uh, union officers from engaging in outright political campaigning uh, or, or lobbying uh, while on the clock for their government job on, on behalf of the union. Uh, but there's really, I think, much much more that needs to be done to ensure that uh, unions are paying their own way and not end up uh, being subsidized by taxpayers. But but all that to say, certainly happens at the federal level, uh, but very common at the state level uh, as well, even in conservative territory. Well, so let's dive into that briefly. So if you're indicating that Arizona passed something to prohibit the lobbying by unions while taxpayers are paying them, that indicates that the other side of that is there's many states that allow that to occur. That's exactly right. So yeah. taxpayers are funding lobbyists, essentially. Correct. So in uh, in Montana, for instance, earlier this year, uh, Senate, State Senator uh, John Fuller introduced legislation uh, to regulate more strictly release time uh, in, in Montana uh, government uh, and labor relations. And as part of that legislative debate, uh, several union contracts at the municipal level, school district level, uh, came to light that had specific grants of release time. Uh, I, I believe it was the, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Butte uh, School District's uh, teachers union contract provided a bank of release time for the for the local union president, a full time teacher to go to <laughs> Helena, the state capital, during the legislative session and lobby. So that not only did they provide general amounts of release time uh, that could be used for whatever union representational work or otherwise uh, the union wanted to engage in, but they had carved out a specific bank of time or uh, days, I believe it was, or weeks uh, for the union president to go lobby in in Helena uh, on behalf of the union. Again, all while being paid full teacher salary, full teacher benefits. Uh, and there's that's one example that I have at the top of my mind. So we were uh, we were doing some research out in Montana uh, earlier this year uh, on that issue, but uh, I know there are plenty of other examples like that out there. Well, I you know I came out of the private sector, and we had a fairly large facility in which, of course, it was unionized. And I recall our union president as well as vice president were paid as full-time employees because they were employees of the employer to do union business, which was essentially to go to CLC meetings or AFL-CIO, you know, state-level meetings, things like that, to handle grievances, to meet with management, et cetera. However, for those of us that were not either the vice president or president of the local, if we were to go meet with management, the employer would pay for that. However, if we're, which I did a lot, go down to the union hall to do union business set down at the hall, that was paid for by the union. That's what union dues are for. Mm-hmm. And so that begs the question, if if union leaders, not necessarily full-time union president or officers in the public sector, if you have a shop steward or if you have a chief steward or whatever that belongs to, say, AFGE, you know, are they paid to go down and sit on their butts at the union hall by the taxpayer? So in, in the federal context, the, the statute does a couple different things. The statute requires that unions be granted official time to engage in contract negotiations or representational work, although that's not defined overly precisely. 
Uh, on the other hand, the statute states that unions, uh, union officers are not supposed to engage in the internal business of a labor organization while on the clock or on official time, although the Federal Labor Relations Authority has not put uh, much meat on the bones there in defining what constitutes the internal business of a labor organization that's not representational related. Um, so in practice, that prohibition uh, ha doesn't have the teeth probably that it should. And then in the middle, the statute provides that, you know, if you've got these, these two extremes, you know, we, we have to have official time for representational work, not supposed to get it for internal union business. And for anything else, uh, anything in between those two, the union is supposed to have uh, official time in basically in any amount that the uh, agency and the union agree to be reasonable, necessary, and in the public interest is the language in the statute, which is incredibly broad and vague and right. subjective. And you can drive uh, you can drive a semi truck through that loophole, and very often that's exactly what happens. Uh, now it was it was interesting the uh, during the Trump administration about halfway through uh, uh, Trump's term. Uh, he issued an executive order addressing official time and, and other mechanisms by which federal taxpayers fund union functions to, to try and put some guardrails in place and direct agencies in their contract negotiations with unions to aim for uh, essentially a, a ceiling of release time, uh, not to exceed, as a general matter, one hour of release time or one, one hour of official time per bargaining unit employee per year. Basically, if you're bargaining away more than that, you better have a really good reason. This was essentially the, uh, the direction of the executive order. Uh, and so that forced a lot of agencies and unions to, uh, to kind of sort through this and, and uh, some contentious negotiations as a result of that process uh, to, to get within those parameters. Uh, but, you know, that essentially what, what Trump was doing was trying to define in some more specified way what reasonable, necessary, and in the public interest uh, quantities of official time look like. Uh, I remember so the, unions, was, the unions went ballistic when he did that, too. They absolutely did. There was litigation filed. Uh, there was obviously contentious negotiations. Uh, I was at the Federal Service impasse panel at the time which uh, is a sub-entity of the FLRA that's tasked with resolving uh, impasses in negotiations uh, between agencies, federal agencies and unions. And there were a lot of these kinds of impasse disputes coming before the, the panel at that time uh, because it was a very contentious issue uh, and the subject of quite a, quite a bit of uh, uh, controversy. Uh, now, of course, that executive order was promptly rescinded by uh, President Biden when he was inaugurated took office. I, I want to say it was on day two of his presidency, I think, that he, he did away with that executive order. Right. Uh, and, and so we've seen the pendulum swing in the opposite direction uh, in the last couple of years where the federal government is uh, going out of its way to aid and facilitate uh, union organizing and union activity, again, at taxpayers' expense. Uh, across the federal workforce. So what happened recently that created this buzz uh, of articles about the OPM taking down something? Or I just, I saw the headlines, I glanced at the articles, I read yours, but there's something the OPM did and created some controversy. 
Well, with, without uh, without putting too fine a point on it, uh, our our report here was uh, was a catalyst for that uh, recent spate of, of coverage. Uh, Fox News ran went, ran with the story as an exclusive initially, and, and we then officially published our report uh, after that. And it's it's picked up additional coverage since then. Uh, but the the Office of Personnel Management uh, is an entity within the, the White House orbit. Uh, that is tasked with overseeing federal workforce matters. OPM, since the late 90s in the Clinton administration, has regularly studied and reported on the number of official time hours, the amount of official time that is being used uh, by federal work, uh, federal workers across uh, the government, and the cost associated with that official time. And through, you know, beginning again late in the Clinton Clinton administration. Through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, OPM has released a new report, a new analysis on official time about once every year or so uh, on, on average, uh, consistently. There's not any statutory obligation that I'm aware of that OPM do that analysis, but it's been doing it pretty consistently for um, over 20 years. And the, uh, the OPM website had you know, for I believe since about 2013, had a, a centralized page, a landing page with information about uh, official time, what it is, where it comes from, uh, and then a links to all of the historical reports that OPM had published on official time use and associated costs, uh, with the last one being the uh, study of uh, fiscal year 2019 that was uh, released uh, in the latter uh, parts of the uh, Trump administration. Well, I, I referred back to that uh, that page periodically when researching or commenting on official time and in, in settings like this, and in uh, in my own writing and, and uh, commentary on the subject. And so, you know, later this summer, I think it was late July, you know, I had an interview coming up, and I was looking up the OPM website to see what the latest information was, and I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it anywhere. And uh, started, you know, doing some more searching and digging and, and realized that uh, several pages on OPM's website that had pertained to uh, official time uh, were just gone. Uh, that I was able to recreate the URLs, uh, but those all generated, uh, you know, 404 errors now. And thanks to the Internet Archive, you know, the Wayback Machine, which is such a fantastic uh, tool for uh, uh, research and matters like this, uh, I was able to verify it. I, I wasn't crazy. These websites did used to exist. Uh, you can still access them through the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine now. Uh, and so essentially the uh, OPM pulled those pages down uh, sometime in late July or early August. And uh, we had... Uh, worked with the reporter at the time who submitted an inquiry to to OPM, you know, hey, what's going on here? Uh, why are these pages all gone now? And OPM had responded with, uh, you know, basically this is a non-issue. We're just updating our website and moving content around. Don't worry about it. Uh, and that was well over three months ago. Uh, and we still have no additional changes on OPM's website. All those pages on official time are still gone. Uh, now, the reports are still public documents. You could file a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, and get them, I'm sure. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is, at the same time those OPM official time web pages were removed and taken down, uh, OPM posted new material, new, new web pages, 
very pro-union in content, featuring, you know, the vice president at uh, Department of Labor hosted town hall discussions talking about the importance of union organizing and worker empowerment in the federal sector, uh, linking to the White House's uh, uh, Council on, gosh, I'm forgetting the name, it's a mouthful, Council on Worker Empowerment, uh, Worker Organizing and Empowerment. So links to some very pro-union material is now up on OPM's website. But this this uh, highlighted focus on some of these web pages of official time is just completely gone. Uh, and after we published our report here, after waiting a respectable amount of time for OPM to update its website, uh, OPM has continued to claim that this is just uh, just a website thing. We'll, we're in the midst of a reorganization. There's there's no indication the website is being overhauled in any systematic way. These pages were taken down. Pro-union pages replace them. That's that's the end of it. Uh, it's just dis uh, very disappointing uh, that the they administration can't even be transparent about <laughs> the issue. It's you know if you want to lean into being a, a pro-worker administration, fine. But let's be honest with the public about the cost. Uh, that's not asking too much. Right. Do you recall like the last time it was published? How many hours and/or dollars were spent on official time? So the, the last OPM report from fiscal year 2019 uh, showed that there were at least 2.6 million hours of taxpayer-funded official time uh, across the federal workforce uh, at a cost of about $135 million to federal taxpayers. Two caveats to that, though. The, 20, the fiscal year 2019 study uh, came after Trump's executive order, which sharply limited release time. So comparing the 2019 analysis to the, the prior analysis, pre-executive you know pre -executive order, uh, the 2019 report showed a 28% decrease in the number of official time hours that were used. Uh, now, I'm sure that with the repeal of that executive order and this administration's general, uh, generally very, very favorable posture towards federal employees unions, I'm sure that if OPM published an updated study now, it would show a dramatic spike uh, from the 2019 levels in uh, release or, uh, official time use and the associated costs. Uh, I suspect that's one of the reasons they don't want to talk about this issue. Uh, and I guess that actually is a segue to another point that I should mention. Uh, not only has OPM taken down these web pages highlighting official time, uh, but OPM now has, uh, has gone longer without an updated report on official time use than at any point since this practice started, uh, you know, these one to two year reports started over 20 years ago. So I have, I'm not going to hold my breath that we'll see any updated reports from OPM on official time uh, from this administration, which is, again, disappointing. But I, I suspect part of the reason is that if they did publish a new report, it would show a dramatic spike in official time. The other caveat that I have to mention uh, when we're trying to get our heads wrapped around the amount that this costs taxpayers is, is the difficulty in tracking it. And this is not new. I mean, you go back even before OPM, you know, when the uh, Government Accountability Office, since the 70s, made periodic attempts to try and work with agencies and document how much uh, official time is being used and how much it costs. Uh, GAO repeatedly has written and indicated in congressional testimony that 
really nobody has any idea how pervasive this practice is because the agencies uh, are not doing enough to track it. It's just not, it's not being tracked diligently. Uh, it's not being, but no, nobody's paying attention. Agency practices differ now. You know, I'm sure some agencies do a better job than others of uh, tracking uh, official time use and, and keeping records on it. But that has been a pervasive challenge uh, and continues to be to this day uh, that makes any attempt to quantify with certainty the cost uh, of official time to the federal government very difficult to do. Uh, but we know it's a lot, <laughs> and what what has been measured indicates that it's uh, it's very significant. Do you know whether it's you or anybody else if there's been any FOIAs filed to get the information? Uh, over the years, uh, organizations like Freedom Foundation, uh, government accountability groups have, have made attempts to quantify uh, official time use through Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, I believe there are some efforts underway to, to do that now in this administration, given that we're not likely uh, going to get anything from OPM on the subject that's a little more official. Uh, so it's it's an undertaking, no doubt, uh, to try and measure that across uh, the federal government uh, bureaucracy. There are hundreds of uh, collective bargaining agreements with all differing provisions on official time uh, in uh, across the federal agency uh, bureaucracy. So it's, it's a challenge, uh, but theoretically uh, you can get there eventually. And so hopefully we might see some, uh, some organizations shedding light on the extent to which this is happening under, under this administration. But uh, again, it's, it's an undertaking uh, to, to do as an outside uh, entity. Yeah. And again, I, as a private sector worker, I, you know, wouldn't even have considered that as being part of where my tax dollars are going. So it's a matter of educating people, I guess. Well, and you know, the private sector angle, of course, is I, I'm sure if release time uh, provisions are common, uh, or at least somewhat common in private sector union contracts as well. Now, there are many differences between collective bargaining and unionization in government versus in the private sector. Uh, and in the private sector, you know, there's no public interest or taxpayer interest in uh, private sector workers, you know, employees of a private company being allowed to do union work while they're privately employed. There's, there's no public interest or concern there. If that's what the parties want to negotiate, then so be it. Uh, but there is well, another interesting. It does go to the cost of either running a business or running the government, because if you've got a right. worker who is signed out to go do union business, and instead of making widgets, the company has to replace that person. Yeah. That affects the company's bottom line. But in right. this case, if you've got a, you know, somebody working in the VA who signed out full time to go do union business and their job is to deal with patients or whatever, that means the VA is going to have to hire somebody else to do that job. Correct. Correct. So your cost of government goes up. Yeah, no, in the public sector context, absolutely there's a public concern, a public issue here with, with official time and release time. Uh, and there's plenty of examples that have come out over the years of official time being abused and taken advantage of. It's, it's very common in the federal sector for some employees uh, to have uh, 100% official time to, to the point where you've got some of these local union presidents, again, federal employees who have not worked their federal job in years or a decade or 20 right. years. Right. They've been on full-time, 100% official time. Uh, you know, for most or all of their careers. Uh, and so one of, one of the interesting challenges uh, uh, 
that, that came out of the Trump uh, era executive order, uh, in addition to limiting the total amount of, of official time to uh, one hour per bargaining unit member per year, the order limited the uh, percentage of official time that any individual union officer uh, could could be on. I think it was 25%, no more than 25% of any individual officer's workday could be spent on official time. And so you had you know, federal employees throughout the, uh, the government who were you know, out of compliance with their certifications or their training or their continuing education, you know, the, the normal requirements they, that they would have had to meet in order to maintain employment as a federal employee. But because they'd been on official time so long, all those things had lapsed. So these, you know, these are folks that had to go out and get their, you know, firearms qualification again, or you know, their their backlog of continuing education or, or other right. professional certifications, uh, because they were they were actually having to learn how to do the job that they were hired to do all over again. Yeah, they uh, actually we, had to work. They actually had to they actually had to work. Uh, so w- when you're on 100 percent official time. You know, I mentioned earlier that uh, the, the federal statute says official time is not supposed to be used for internal union business. But if you're a union officer and you're on 100% official time, when are you going to be doing internal union business? Are you doing that on the evenings and, and on the weekends? Mm, no, I'm pretty sure those things are going to be happening during the workday as well. And, and there's been plenty of whistleblower uh, testimony in Congress over the years and investigative reports or inspector general reports uh, that have documented that, you know, oftentimes these 100 percent release uh, or 100% official time employees are running a side gig, uh, you know, selling real estate, uh, <laughs> oh, working, on, working on their house, uh, you know, maybe they're pursuing their hobbies, you know, maybe they're out golfing for the day because, well, I don't really have any other union work to do and I'm on hundred percent release. So I don't have any federal obligations to fulfill. Sure. I'll knock off a little early and, uh, you know, get some shopping done on the way home or take the day and go golfing or fishing or shopping or whatever it is, or yeah, set up a side business that I can run in my spare time on taxpayer expense. So it's very, very easy to game the system, especially when you're dealing with hundred percent release time. Well, you know, the other question it begs, and this should be from the union's members themselves is what the hell are they paying union dues for? If the tax dollars are picking up the union's business, what are union dues being used for? And where is that money going? (laughs) Well, that money goes also into uh, funding large headquarters buildings or political activity on the union's behalf. But but you're absolutely right. And there's a public argument there as well. Why why is uh, why is the government facilitating union dues collection uh, through payroll deduction? And at the same time, footing the bill by, by paying union officers to go do union work. I mean, they, at the end of the day, unions will take what they can get. They will, they will take sure. any opportunity they can to offload their costs and their administrative burdens uh, to taxpayers. And that's, that's exactly what you see. That's, that's the top of their uh, to-do list. Anytime they get into a new bargaining relationship for the first time, what are their contract priorities? It's not going to be getting everybody in the unit a big raise, the very first things they're going to be trying to secure in that contract are, if it's not already granted to them in law, getting the employer to agree to collect dues from employees' paychecks via payroll deduction, 
uh, getting access to release time, or having the employer turn over detailed personal contact information, allowing the union to use the employer's communications apparatus to organize and solicit membership and conduct meetings. Uh, it's, it's anything they can do to solidify their status, minimize their costs, and offload those expenses and those administrative burdens to the taxpayer is absolutely at the top of their list. And I think we've seen that trend accelerate. That's always been true, but I think we've seen that that trend accelerate in the years since the U.S. Supreme Court's Janus versus AFSCME decision, uh, which is, as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, essentially extended right-to-work protections to all public employees across the country and by making union membership and dues payment uh, optional. Well, one of the, uh, you know, the National Education Association is uh, not just the biggest teachers union in the country. It's not even the biggest uh, government employees union in the country. It's the biggest union of any kind (laughs) in the United States. And the NEA, uh, after the Supreme Court's Janus case, came out with a a fairly short memo to its affiliates, uh, just two pages long, but listing in, in, you know, bullet point paragraph format the eight essentials to a strong union contract without uh, agency fees, without these required payments from non-members that that they could no longer compel. And one of the items on the list is release time for for union leaders and activists. You know, if we're going to lose some revenue from dues collection, how do we offset that? Well, let's shift the burden to taxpayers and require them to pay for uh, union officers and their activities. and we've, we've seen that same concept now starting to proliferate in state legislatures uh, who are expanding or you know, creating uh, tax credits or tax deductions for union dues payments. Uh, now, that works if you're in a, in a blue state with an income tax. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing proposals that are pretty extreme uh, and essentially would, would require taxpayers to end up picking up some or maybe all the cost of uh, union membership dues. Again, that's that's shifting the burden again from the employees. Uh, can you, you, can, can you give a couple examples? Because I'm suspecting Virginia might be one of those. Uh, not in Virginia just just yet, although uh, you know I wouldn't be surprised to see it pop up at some point. Uh, California and Delaware have uh, now passed and signed into law uh, tax credit arrangements for mm-hmm. union dues. Michigan has proposed one, hasn't passed it, at least not yet. Uh, and I suspect we'll continue to see uh, union-aligned uh, blue state legislatures explore that concept more. Um, it, again, it's, it's structured differently, right? It's not the same thing as official time or, or release time. Right. But the concept of offloading costs, uh, the cost of financing and operating a union, shifting that burden from the members of the union to taxpayers uh, is is definitely, I think, a, a strategy, a conscious strategy that the unions are trying to uh, pursue. That's fascinating. I had not realized that. And um, I would suspect Virginia is on its way because they've started doing some interesting things through the, the state government there. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, that's, that's the kind of policy that really is only viable in a, a trifecta blue state with, with plenty of money. Be interesting to see as some of the federal COVID cash dries up and uh, states start facing leaner times uh, when it comes to tax revenues and budgets and economic uh, challenges on the horizon. Be interesting to see if, if these uh, blue states are as excited to take on that extra cost burden on unions' path 
uh, when forced to choose between so many other competing budget priorities, uh, we, we might not see so much interest in the next couple of years. But uh, it's a signal anyway, what we've seen in recent years, it's, it's a signal, I think, of where the unions would like to go. Uh, and it's, it's pretty outrageous at the end of the day. Now, labor relations is, is kind of an interesting uh, field that not a lot of people have firsthand experience with, particularly if you're outside government. Uh, but these decisions, these issues, this subject matter has huge implications for taxpayers, for how government operates, for uh, how responsive or transparent or accountable your government is going to be. I mean, all of these fundamental uh, operations of government questions, the kind of things that create scandals and get headlines, often can be tied to uh, a union's role in, in a workplace or, or the ability of a union to stifle reform efforts uh, in how right. government operates. Uh, so it's it's definitely something that I think people generally need to pay more attention to. Yeah, of course, they're paying attention to going to work to pay their bills in the era of high inflation. So, so much to pay attention to. Correct. Now, I, I guess uh, I can't fault people too much. Uh, using your spare time to delve into the world of uh, government employee labor relations is probably right. not one of the top of most people's uh, ideas of fun. Right. So I wanted to ask you, what else is the Freedom Foundation up to these days? I think you've got a case or cases, plural, going up to the Supreme Court, perhaps? We, we do, actually. We've, uh, we've got two cases uh, pending before the Supreme Court right now. Uh, well, that we're hoping the Supreme Court will accept. We filed our, our petitions for certiorari. Uh, we, will, we will see where that goes. Uh, some of these cases were on the calendar to be considered last week. Uh, the court bumped them to tomorrow. Uh, so we may have some news, good, bad, or otherwise, uh, as soon as tomorrow. But it's possible that they, they bumped them down the line again. Uh, this is there's, on the forgery case, right? The forgery cases? Correct. So we, we have five, uh, well, we've represented a number now, probably several dozen uh, public employees in West Coast states that have had their signatures on union membership agreements forged by union organizers, sometimes in writing, you know, the old-fashioned way, pen and paper, uh, sometimes electronically. Uh, and in each of those cases so far, the lower federal courts, district courts, and, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, have a, uh, essentially dodged the issue. They've, they've tried to avoid grappling with whether a forgery occurred and the civil rights implications of the union seizing uh, a public employee's money as dues without their consent, which in light of Janus is a First Amendment issue. Mm -hmm. Courts have tried to stay away from getting into those substantive issues and have instead taken to finding that these public employees simply don't have uh, a right to seek redress in federal court. And I won't go too far into the details as to why, but it's pretty insane, uh, some of the reasoning that, that they've uh, adopted to prevent these employees from being able to, uh, to seek redress. Uh, so we've appealed uh, five of those cases as a uh, end block to, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, we will see... Hopefully they accept that case. Uh, there is another interesting labor case pending out of Alaska that touches on this similar question of, of when is it appropriate for a government employer and a labor union to collect dues money from a public employee? You know, under what circumstances is that permissible? We know we can't compel people to pay now in light of Janus, 
but what type of consent, what kind of procedures or processes need to be in place to ensure that that deduction and that collection of money happens appropriately and in a manner that honors uh, the employee's civil rights. There's a lot of questions there that the Supreme Court really should step in and clarify. Uh, its silence on, on those issues in the last five years uh, has really uh, allowed very coercive, very abusive practices and policies to proliferate uh, in these states that tend to be uh, controlled or subject to uh, to the influence of government unions. Uh, but the, the case out of Alaska is, uh, essentially raises that question through a different mechanism uh, than our forgery cases do. Uh, in that state, the governor and the attorney general several years ago after the Janus case uh, adopted the view of Janus, the interpretation of Janus that we think is correct, uh, and said, look, if, if the employer, if we as the employer as the state of Alaska are going to be deducting union dues from the pay of our state employees, we need to put, we're responsible ultimately for protecting the civil rights of, of our employees. And so we have an affirmative obligation under the First Amendment in light of Janus to create a uh, dues authorization process that allows us to hear directly from the employees. It doesn't rely on what the union tells us these individual employees want to do. We want to get the authorization directly as the state from these employees. Uh, create a central online portal where employees can sign up to authorize dues payments and deductions or cancel them whenever they want. And that's the process that we're going to use. That's a process we think is the state of Alaska is constitutionally necessary. Well, the, the union, the uh, NAFSME affiliate there, obviously disagreed. Uh, and uh, the state and AFSCME have been fighting in state courts uh, about whether the state's new dues collection process is uh, permissible under Alaska law. State's position is, well, we're constitutionally required to do this. The union's position is, no, you're not constitutionally required to do it. And state law requires that basically you defer to us. Let us tell you who to deduct money from and, and uh, how, to, how to conduct that process. And the Alaska Supreme Court sided with the unions uh, and, and said that state law was violated and that there was no constitutional obligation on the part of the state to, to implement this process. So the, uh, you know, most cases that get before the Supreme Court wind their way through federal courts, uh, as our forgery cases did. Uh, but some cases do get to the Supreme Court directly from uh, a state Supreme Court. And so the, the state of Alaska has appealed that state Supreme Court ruling to, to the U.S. Supreme Court because of the constitutional implications. Uh, and so hopefully uh, the Supreme Court accepts one or both of those two uh, cases and, and addresses the these uh, secondary debates that have been playing out uh, and, and hopefully provides some meaningful safeguards for employees uh, who too often are just being victimized under the current procedures. You know, it, as a former union person and someone who would value a union that's honest to, to hear of cases that unions are spending dues money of their members to fight for fraud, it it seems antithetical to what unions are supposed to be doing. I, I mean, we, we make that point. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, part of what we do as Freedom Foundation is, is not just the legal work, but the educational work to inform public employees that they have these rights now uh, right. to refrain from membership 
and to give them information about how their union is behaving and what they're spending dues money on. And so we're, we're more than happy to go to employees and let, let them know that yeah, your union is spending dues money on uh, attorneys, you know, uh, whole legal firms to defend the fact that it's forging your colleagues signatures on membership agreements. There was even a case out of Oregon. Uh, I, every now and again, you know, we, we, even those of us who deal with these things day in and day out have to kind of step back and scratch our heads at just how insane some of this conduct is. Uh, but there was an employee in Oregon that we represent who filed a federal case uh, because her signature had been forged. And the, the union filed an unfair labor practice complaint against the employee uh, in, in Oregon before their state labor board, purely because she sought to resolve the, this issue in federal court. And the, and the union essentially argued, you don't have a right to go to federal court. You have to resolve this through the Oregon uh, Employment Relations Board. And it's, it's a violation of state law for you to file a federal civil rights lawsuit. Uh, absolutely insane when you stop and think about it but so we're representing her in that uh, as well as the federal case about her signature being forced. that's crazy and yes it is you know from a reputational standpoint for unions to do that you'd also going back to the why are they spending union dues to fight for fraud you gotta you gotta imagine that just engenders people to get upset and want out I, it, it does. Uh, I, it absolutely does to the extent that you're able to inform people of what the unions are doing and to the extent that people are able to actress, uh, exercise uh, and act on that frustration. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but that's that's part of the rub uh, is the, the fact that the unions are able to get away with these kinds of restrictions on, on uh, membership cancellation and the fact that they're able to pressure and, and twist arms with state assistance, the fact that they're able to apparently get away uh, with outright forgery uh, makes it difficult. You know, it's, it's more difficult than it should be uh, for employees with concerns to resign their membership. Uh, so it's, there's a little bit of chicken and egg involved in, in terms of blazing the path for people and establishing that you have a right to get out uh, and then being able to act on on the you know, the, the frustrations that you may have with your representation. Right. Well, Max, let me ask you, um, I've, I've kept you for about an hour, uh, slightly less, but if I'm a public sector worker or want more information, want to know what my rights are, how do I get hold of you? So the, the Freedom Foundation has set up a, a dedicated website, optouttoday.com, uh, O-P-T-O-U-T-today.com. Uh, that is tailored towards public employees uh, who are interested in canceling their union membership. And so we have, you know, a map of the United States broken down, you know, state by state with a list of public employees unions in each state with customized information there about how your union spends your dues money uh, with a digital form that you can complete right on the website to cancel your union membership and directions on where to send it and so on. So that's, that's probably the best resource uh, to start the process of canceling your union membership, we have our contact information, of course, available on the website, uh, phone numbers and email accounts. If people have questions or need assistance in getting uh, through that process successfully, uh, we have attorneys on staff uh, who regularly, uh, you know, as all they do uh, is, is provide this kind of advice and assistance and, if necessary, legal representation uh, to public employees who are trying to successfully cancel their membership. Um, so that's probably the best place to uh, to go, uh, optouttoday.com. We do have our organizational website, freedomfoundation.com, right. 
commentary and staff bios, and you can contact us through through that uh, mechanism as well. But but today.com is really the probably the best place to start as an employee. Yeah, and I'll include the links under the audio portion just in case somebody's driving, they can remember it's opt-outToday.com. Yep, absolutely. Well, sir, it was good seeing you again and talking and, and having you share information. I always enjoy having you on. Well, thanks, Peter. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation. There's always something fun and interesting happening. and There is. We're involved and always happy to talk about it with you. All righty. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. So that was Maxford Nelson from the Freedom Foundation talking about how taxpayer dollars are used to fund union business, as well as an update on the union forgery cases that are hopefully going to be heard by the United States Supreme Court. As always, I'm going to leave some links under the audio portion of this episode. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm just a man living a one-eye stand I'll tell you what I need. Oh, Black Creek, take me to that place and wash my sins away. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.